Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. And today, folks, you are in for a treat. I have Adam Gaffney and Saurabh Jeha joining me to discuss the healthcare system in the United States of America. Clearly, this is an easy topic, right? Of course it is. It's something easy. We'd like to discuss the single payer model. Is this good or bad? The FDA approval system, good or bad? So I've invited Adam Gaffney, who is a critical care physician in the Harvard system. He's also a policy researcher. And uh, you could see a lot of his work on A.W. Gaffney on Twitter. He has written a lot on this topic. And I really think that uh, it's important to hear his views on the healthcare system and how uh, a single payer system actually helps. Also, Saurabh Jeha. Saurabh Jeha is a radiologist in the uh, Pennsylvania area. He actually, his Twitter feed at Rograd, he says he's the first Indian radiologist general of the USA. Rather interesting. He is located in a dark room in the basement somewhere, according to his Twitter profile. Uh, so Rob did some of his training and he did work in the NHS in, uh, in England. So he really understands the uh, single payer model. So I've invited really both of them. The idea here is to understand what do we mean by a single payer model? Is this something that's gonna work or it's not gonna work? The impact of this, what does it do? Does it really help or doesn't it not, or it doesn't help? It's really important for us to figure out why we do that and how it helped and, and what are, where are the opportunities of it if it's not helping? And uh, also, how does a healthcare system, in fact, uh, whatever we do, impact um, the FDA uh, approval process and the regulatory processes? So these are the things that I wanted to have my guests discuss. You can obviously watch them and watch all their facial expressions and whatever they were drinking during the show on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Don't forget to subscribe and hit the like button. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, refer a colleague, and always let me know how we are doing. And without further ado, the single payer system and the FDA regulatory processes with Adam Gaffney and Saurabh Jeha on Healthcare Unfiltered. Well, it's truly a pleasure to have two gurus on social media and healthcare, including the first Indian radiology general, whatever he calls himself, uh, who has been a frequent guest on Healthcare Unfiltered, and a new guest, uh, Adam Gaffney, who I followed his work uh, for a long time and um, certainly a big fan. Uh, sometimes I agree with his views, sometimes I won't, but the good news is I will not provide any of my views today. In fact, I'll be moderating a discussion between Adam and Saurabh talking about the payer model and the payer system in the United States, if we can ever agree on a better model or a best model. And really, how does these approvals that the FDA bring in, how do they actually fit within any of the models we propose? Okay, so I will do more moderation, less talking, I promise except in the beginning. And if you're hearing some sound, there's a thunderstorm outside of my window. So hopefully this will not really impact the taping. Adam, you start first, a little bit about you as to who you are and um, what you do and how did you get involved into healthcare policy and, and, and so on for folks who don't know you. 
Sure. Well, first, um, thanks so much for having me on the podcast, and it's uh, good to be joining both of you. So, yeah, my um, background is uh, clinically in pulmonary and critical care medicine. Um, I'm mostly um, do I mostly work in an ICU in a in a sort of community academic hospital right outside Boston. Um, I'm at Harvard Medical School. I do a fair amount of health policy research, but I also have background in advocacy. So I was president of Physicians for a National Health Program, uh, which is a Medicare for All um, nonprofit advocacy organization um, up until um, last year. So I sort of combine uh, clinical practice in my career. I combine health policy research, some non-academic writing, um, and some posting, and, um, and, and some, some advocacy as well. You're a great writer, you're a prolific writer, but can I ask you, what got you into policy? Is this something that you acquired as you progress in your career or were you, like what, what got you interested in healthcare policy? Um, I would say that it, politics brought me to policy. Um, I've always been interested in history, political change. Uh, I've always had a very progressive political orientation going back to high school. And so I think it made sense for me when I decided on a career in medicine that the way to go about changing the world would be in one small way, which would be in the healthcare sphere. Um, and so that's probably probably where, why I come at it. Great. So Rob, uh, many of my listeners know you, you've been on the show before, but uh, maybe a refresher as to who you are, what you do, and also what got you interested. You do write a lot about healthcare policy in general and liberal politics. What got you into that? Well, thanks, uh, Chadis, for the invitation and great to talk to Adam, who I admire tremendously for his... Uh, single-mindedness about single-payer system. I actually trained in a single-payer system, Britain's NHS. Technically, it's a two-tier system, which I'll get to. And then I migrated to the United States because I changed my stream from surgery to radiology. And so I have uh, two interests. One is uh, radiology, specifically cardiovascular imaging. And the other is the kind of pull socio-political elements altogether. It was hard not actually having that interest because when you get come to the United States, you realize what you know, there's, 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 a lot of, there's a lot of conflict over here, there's a lot of tension over here. And depending on your point of view, I find it fascinating. And so that just looking at it from an outsider's point of view has just been very, very interesting. There are very few countries in the world where forces come colliding with each other. And I know people talk about polarization uh, uh, as if it's a bad thing, but you know, I think that uh, it also exposes a, a certain element of society that is very healthy, which is that if you're not gonna have these clashes, you're not gonna make progress. And so America very much is a country of a clash. So I like that. So let's let's start by level setting for listeners some definitions because when we talk and Adam I'll ask you first when I say the word single payer system am I talking just Medicare for everyone because obviously we know the criteria to be in Medicare right now but if I'm saying single payer system I'm saying Medicare for everyone from the age of from the time they become independent of their parents until the day they die is that what we're talking about that's the usual um, sense of the term. I think, you know, we often use as a model uh, the Canadian system, which is basically a single, it is a single payer system. Um, you enroll effectively 100% of the population um, in a single plan. Now, each 
province has its own plan to some extent, but it's basically one national system for the most part uh, with some variation. Um, and so, yes, I think that is the concept. Um, it would be a plan like Medicare, but for everyone. I would say that, you know, the kind of single payer plan that, um, you know, we propose in Physicians for National Health Program and that that has been described in some of the legislation that's that's in Congress for a number of years um, actually tries to go beyond um, um, some of some of the existing models and and, um, you know, ensure no cost sharing, no out-of-pocket payments um, uh, for doctor visits and, you know, hospitalizations and um, and prescription drugs. Um, and also to change the way we, the way we pay hospitals and the way we finance hospitals, not just who pays, but how pays. So, so I, I would say that the, the sort of bare minimum definition is, is one payer, uh, one government payer that covers everyone. Um, but that, um, that there's a variety of things you can do in addition to that that can achieve greater efficiencies and greater equity. So Adam, and, and in terms of this is, so the government of a particular country, so this would be the federal government of the United States or uh, that will cover the healthcare cost of patients. So how would they, where would they get the money from? Like, taxes or is it state level or federal level or how does that work just to get level set before Saurabh comments on that? Sure. Well, I think it's worth for the purpose of this con conversation, focusing on the federal model. I mean, people have proposed state level single payer plans. There's some bills. Um, it, it, there are certain policy complications there. It's not impossible. You know, Canada started with province level single payer and expanded to national, but it may be simpler for the purpose of the conversation to stick with one archetype. Um, so yes, under that archetype, you basically tax finance the vast majority of healthcare expenditures. And so you might say that's a huge amount of money, and it is, uh, but keep in mind that currently about two thirds of healthcare spending in the United States is already publicly financed, which sounds like more than you might think, but if you add up Medicaid plus Medicare, plus the Veterans um, Administration, plus the Department of Defense, plus the Indian Health Service, plus the tax subsidization for private health insurance, plus the private health insurance premiums for public employees at the state, federal, local level. If you add all that up, you actually, we're currently tax financing about two thirds. So it is, isn't quite as big of a leap as it sounds. So Rob, what's wrong with that? Anything? Well, I think, you know, the idea is good. And personally, I don't have any objections to the idea. And also, as Adam said, he's actually not, uh, he's actually being generous to the current system. The current system, the administrative costs are phenomenal because everybody has to build an insurance company. So if you have, if you take that away, that would just, dramatically re reduce some of the um, waste costs. There are a few things to understand about single payer from a country that actually does the single payer. The first is that it is a single financing system, but it's not simply a case of, well, here's this blank check and you all your hospitals should just come up and take whatever you want. And whatever. there are needs based on population and there's actually a process, a commission at, at the moment where local GPs get a, a wad of cash for their local authority. And so it's not simply a case of, you know, you just 
put your bank card in the ATM and get money for what you need. Brixton, for instance, has a certain budget. Milton Keynes has a budget determined by their GPs. And as you can imagine, determined by multiple things, including the socioeconomic status of the people in those regions. We all know that there's been a long-standing um, relationship, uh, not, not a terribly good one, but an unfortunate one between socioeconomic standing and the actual consumption of healthcare. And so what you have is you're not going to get rid of equity. So let's, what I want, what I want to do over here is push back on some of the misconceptions of what a single payer delivers. You're not going to get rid of the equity. Uh, if you go to London and you go to various hospitals, there's one in Chelsea and Westminster, which is like an American hospital. It has fountains and it has gardens. And then there's one in East London that's like, hospital in India, because that's where the budget is. All the, all the clever people want to go to Chelsea and Westminster, and people that don't have that good grades and references go to the one in East London. So you have, you have a, you know, you don't, you're not going to get rid of this inequity. So if that's, the, if that's your motivation, then I'm afraid you're going to get a bit disappointed. And yes, there is financing, but Again, it's like a central financing that is decentralized. The third point I want to make over here, have I made two or just one? Yeah, but Saurabh, I think uh, what you, what the point, the second point you made is similar to the state level, which I believe Adam was trying to shy away because then you could look at states that serve in underrepresented sure. minorities. And, and he was saying that we should look at it at a federal level. Well, you know, I don't think you can look at it at a federal level because all the action is local. But the third point I want to make is that and I'm not suggesting, you know, I, I'm, I'm pushing Adam back, not because I necessarily disagree with him, but because I think that a lot of the people that sell single payer, it's like, oh, my God, this is so bad. Oh, single payer, everything will be fine. No, it won't. It'll create different problems and it will certainly solve certain problems. The third issue is that one of the reasons why the financing in England succeeds is because they have a long history of a very strong general practice. So at a local level, they have doctors. And these doctors, I've written about this as well, these doctors will tell the people that, mate, you cannot see a cardiologist without first coming through me. You want to see a cardiologist? You need to first, I need to see you. Then I'm going to make the referral. You want to see a neurologist? I will make the referral. That's not terribly compatible with America's freedom, where you know you have a neurologist picture on the I-76 and they advertise directly to patients. So there's lots that are happening that happens over here that's simply incompatible with unless you just want to make single payer like this ATM, where everybody charges what they want to, where the radiologist goes to Uncle Sam and the neurologist goes to Uncle Sam. But if you are going to make it in any way similar to single payers elsewhere, you need to have a very strong general practice, family practice, primary care, not just simply people that tick the EHR boxes and say, all right, counsel for smoking, counsel for gambling, check the mental health, blah, 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 got my value-based basement. No, you have to have primary care physicians that have the balls to say, you don't need to see a specialist. And I don't think American primary care physicians have the balls to say that.
quite frankly. So Adam, I wanted to comment on whether American family physicians have balls or not. <laughs> but I also want to ask you a question, actually. Um, when you determine, when you talk about policy, and let's say you want to change the payment for the healthcare system, and you use whatever, the NHS, Canada, whatever model, do we have enough data today to at least determine whether these models have been successful? Because obviously, if you want to create a model, you want to at least position yourself for success, however you determine success. So my first question is, A, do we have metrics of success? B, are there models out there outside of the US that are successful? C, do American primary care physicians have balls? All right, well, let me go through a couple, a couple of these, these ideas and comments. So the first question is, you know, are there models and how do things stack up comparatively? And I think that's pretty straightforward in terms of the answer. I mean, if you look at healthcare expenditures society-wide, Everyone knows this, it's a commonplace thing to say, but you know, the US has approximately double OECD um, healthcare spending per capita. Our healthcare spending has risen at a much faster rate than other peer high income nations. Um, so obviously from a um, efficiency perspective, um, we um, um, are, are doing poorly and have for a long time. Um, of course, that's not the only thing that matters. Um, we all know that uh, the, par the point of a healthcare system is not to save money. The point of a healthcare system is to improve health. That's why we're doing this. Um, and so if you look at it from that perspective, we also do worse than many other high income nations. Now, it is true if you look at some, just life expectancy, that's going to be confounded by things that are beyond the healthcare system. But if you look at the research that has focused in on um, you know, what they call amenable mortalities so or types of deaths that actually theoretically are preventable through good quality medical care, we do worse in that department as well. Um, and so I think that, yes, if in, in many ways, um, the other high income nations that have single payer systems or national health insurance systems or, you know, um, various configurations thereof um, have overall done better than us from a um, health equity perspective, from a health perspective, and certainly from an economic perspective. So I, I think that that answer is, is is clearly yes. I would like to turn to another point that Sara brought up, which I think is an interesting one. And I like that we're sort of moving quickly beyond sort of single payer and healthcare reform 101 and getting into some of these, see, these more arcane, but I think interesting issues. And that is um, what he said about the fact that even in a NHS, NHS system, even with a single payer system, that um, you see significant inequities geographically, right? So he mentioned that there's the how that you know that, that there are differences in the socioeconomic utilization of healthcare between regions. Um, that you know there's the hospitals with the fountains and those without, and so on. And and and, and I concede that um, simply passing a single payer system or simply creating this kind of system doesn't suddenly undo decades or centuries of, um, of, of, of inequity, of buildup of healthcare resources in some areas and then neglect in others. You know, the fact that, you know, um, and we saw this even with COVID. I mean, there was a study that came out last year that found that, you know, low-income communities, about half had not a, not a single ICU bed, whereas high-income communities, almost 100% had an ICU bed. And I don't think ICUs are the sort of 
perfect metric of, of equity, but I bring it up because we're in the context of this pandemic. Um, and you can obviously cite a lot of other um, statistics of that sort. But where am I going with this? Well, the point is, is that a single payer system does allow you to actually make proactive steps to move towards greater equity, right? Um, to bring healthcare facilities and resources to where they're needed to a greater extent. Um, it's not perfect, but this is something that, you know, famously a, a British, we're talking about GPs, a British GP, um, uh, uh, Julian Tudor Hart, a sort of well-known leftist um, primary care doctor and health policy researcher, you know, coined this term, the inverse care law, uh, which he, you know, described as, quote, the availability of good medical care tends to vary inversely with the need of the population served, meaning there's more care where it's less needed. And he was talking about the UK, right? But it is also true um, that um, things that affirmative steps were made um, in the 70s and 80s um, and 90s to, to try to fix some of those long-standing inequities. Um, there is evidence that some of that made a difference in terms of health outcomes. Um, and so having a single payer system that gives you tools to at least move those resources to a greater extent to areas that need them. Now, there's always going to be the sort of flagship hospitals. There's always going to be the big academic centers that can do certain procedures and certain kinds of um, um, offer certain kinds of care that are not available elsewhere. We're never gonna have a situation where every community hospital offers the same things. And that wouldn't be good because we know that for particularly for uncommon, you know, rare, you know, organ transplants and other procedures, you actually want a high volume center. You don't want, you know, um, um, someone who does one or two a year to be the one doing them. So the point is, is that yes, so just to recapitulate, yes, there is evidence um, that other countries do better, I agree that single payer doesn't create equity suddenly, but it does give us tools to move um, resources where they're needed. Now, I do agree that as part of this shift, um, that we do need a more of a focus on primary care. And I think that's, 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 that's correct. Um, I think that we have not enough primary care physicians in the United States. I think we need more. I think we could probably use a lot less of some specialists. Um, and I say that as a specialist, so it's no knock on, on specialists. Um, and there's no reason that as part of such a transformation, we couldn't in increase training of primary care doctors um, and potentially reduce training of certain specialists that we may have an access of. Um, Adam, Adam, how much of this a little bit cultural? Because I do think like Sorab brings up something really interesting. Some of it is training, like you mentioned, for primary care and obviously increasing their power and making sure that they obviously say no when they say no. But the other part is a little bit culture in the US, like the people of the US are a little bit, you know, if I wanna see a neurologist, I want to see a neurologist. I, you know, I mean, is there some cultural differences? Like we're just used that we read, if I want to get an MRI next week, I'm not going to wait two weeks. I, I want the MRI tomorrow. So I think that um, a, a couple of things, I mean, one, look, the issue of referrals, we can talk a lot about it. I, I think in many cases, referrals are a good idea, right? Um, that it can be hard to know what specialist to see. And that that's what your primary care physician is there for, to take on a lot of problems. Um, and when he or she um, is unable to, then, then, then refer you to the needed specialist. Now, my understanding of Canadian system um, is that referrals are the norm, uh, not technically required, but, but, but far and away the norm. Um, and you can have different kinds of configurations of that. 
But I mean, the reality is, is that referrals are needed in a lot of healthcare plans already. I mean, depends upon um, if you have Medicare fee for service, that's not the case. But if you have a lot of other HMO type um, healthcare plans, you will need a referral. So it wouldn't be that big of a change for a lot of people to have some kind of referral uh, requirements. And I'm not even saying it's necessarily necessary. Um, I, I would say in terms of waiting times, I mean, look, um, the reality is, is that for better or for worse, as you transition to single payer, we have just as many MRI machines, we have just as many orthopedic surgeons, we have just as many CAT scans, uh, just as many lab um, facilities. So for better or for worse, you will be able to sort of keep up at, at least the same, if not increased total output of services. Um, and so, you know, maybe that will, that will mean that we have higher healthcare costs relative to other high income nations with single payer systems, even if we achieve single payer, I fully admit that. Um, but I think that's a more likely sort of outcome here than sort of envisioning that we sort of adopt wholesale a you know a British system or a Canadian system. That's that's not going to happen. It's going to be it's going to combine some elements of, of what already exists here with the financing um, that that sort of undergirds say the Canadian system. So Rob the. So Adam obviously admits that it's not going to solve the in, in, uh, inequality, but it's going to be a step forward, at least like one step, because it's going to take time until we solve the issue of disparities, if you will. Uh, but it's a step forward in the right direction. At least that's what Adam thinks. I'd like you to comment on that. And then the second thing I'd like you to address is maybe it's not just about disparities. Maybe it's about we just can't afford it. We have to reduce healthcare costs, although the last statement that Adam said, it might increase the healthcare costs. So uh, do you really think it lowers the cost? I mean, you know- or well, It's hard to argue with Adam because he's very honest and that makes it a bit difficult uh, pinning him down. So he has said exactly what um, I points I've raised is that he admits that it's not going to reduce the healthcare costs, but a lot of people, he said disparities and cost, both of them. Okay, let, let's start with disparity. He also admits that. Now, he believes that uh, it's a step in the direction of reducing inequity, and I think that I, I can't see how it is. I think that healthcare is like an epiphenomenon. It's like the cart. If you want to reduce inequity, you need to target stuff like education. You need to get jobs, education, infrastructure. Uh, I, I live in Philadelphia. Um, Adam, I believe, lives in Boston. I think Philadelphia is slightly more uh, heterogeneous than Boston, if, I, if I'm correct. In any case, there are places in Philadelphia that, honestly, they do not lack healthcare per se. And, and the reason I say that is because my institution, my institution I'm at, has a huge presence in West and North Philadelphia. In fact, they're actually bailing out a hospital that's failing so it's not true that the current system, the people in these zip codes are getting neglected. I think we're not solving the root cause of their issue. And the root cause of the issue is quite simply lack of infrastructure, lack of education. And when I say lack of education, you know, you can't just build a school. You need to get people there. You need to get the teachers there. You need to get the brightest and the best to be schooled, you need to get movement on the conveyor belt of progress. You need to, you know, 
Um, you need to have social class migration, stuff like that. Stuff that England has grappled with, Britain has grappled with for the last 40 years. Healthcare comes really far down. Now, you know, let's think of it this way. You, what, what is more important for that zip code? Mammograms or a, you know, K-12 plus education with, uh, with, with the prospect of moving to the um, middle class, moving to from blue collar to white collar. Mammograms is like, you know, it's like the end. <laughs> healthcare, healthcare and medical care is so insignificant, it's unbelievable. And anyone that studies net benefits and overdiagnosis realizes that its contribution to the overall you know, the overall well-being of society is like is like peeing in front of Niagara Falls, and Niagara Falls being education, infrastructure, uh, jobs, uh, hope, stuff like that. So I, I don't think that the single payer is going to move in that direction unless you have those infrastructure-related things. And, uh, and and I'm sorry, you know, Trump wasted four years of that, yeah, yeah, but and I, uh, and Mr. Biden is wasting also time in that. But but I uh, think but I think Saurabh, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. What you're saying, please correct me if I'm misunderstanding you. What you're saying is society at large has competing interests, and every society might decide what's important: building schools and parks and highways or healthcare. Am I? No, no. No, I'm going beyond that. I'm saying that if you want to raise the well-being of people in the slums of Mumbai, don't bother with a mammogram machine. Education, infrastructure, jobs is what are what you need, and that's the same thing in Western North Philadelphia. But why are they so, exclusive? Why are they mutually exclusive? They're not mutually exclusive, but it's it's when you think that one is the solution and it's not. I'm not suggesting they're mutually exclusive. You can. You can bring the mammogram machine, but if you bring the mammogram machine and you don't bring the education, then you're wasting your time, quite frankly. And, you know, Madam says he's a socialist. I'm actually a socialist, too. I'm an admirer of Che Guevara. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I say I'm a former communist, but, you know, we're all, all communists are always communists. I'm an admirer of the French Revolution. So I just think that healthcare isn't the way to deliver, you know, equity. I think there are ways that, Transcend healthcare. Healthcare is just hopeless of that. So, add a, pet, sca so pet scans are not are not what's going to let, deliver. Let me. But, but, but okay, I want to. I want to. I want to have Adam chime in here. Yes. Okay. First of all, I I don't think we should put the mammogram as the central um you know uh, benefit that healthcare delivers. I mean, put let's put that aside for a second. Uh, a few things. First of all, on the equity front, I just want to address this. I was conceding that when you create single payer, you don't suddenly in and of itself level the playing field geographically in terms of where doctors are, where hospitals are, where the PET scan and the mammogram machine, mammogram machine is. Um, but it does give you a tool to move in that direction. But even putting that aside, even if you didn't address those geographic inequities, um, the way the healthcare system is right now, who gets healthcare and who doesn't is distributed by me by people's means. So uh, if you're uninsured, you have high deductibles, you have high co-pays, then you are often unable to get healthcare in this country. So that would that equity part would be instantaneously solved by having universal coverage without without cost sharing. Um, and so that would be a giant step towards equity. 
Um, putting aside the geographic disparities issue that I do concede is a, requires additional steps and more time. I just wanted to clear that up. Yeah, yeah. but, but I, I, wanna, I wanna just, as you're clearing up, please address the market forces. Do you believe in free markets or not? And do they apply to healthcare? Go ahead, Dana. So um, I think that market-based medicine has failed in medicine. Um, I think that if you look at, um, you know, the, the U.S. has one of the most market-driven healthcare systems, and it's really failed to deliver uh, health optimally or um, or cost savings. Um, I mean, look, in a market-based system, healthcare goes to where it's profitable: healthcare providers, healthcare facilities. Uh, it's means, not needs, that decides where the healthcare goes, who gets healthcare, right? But that's not how we think as doctors. Um, we think that healthcare should go to those who need it on the basis of their medical needs, right? And so it's a totally different framework in medicine than in markets. Um, now, I'm not obviously there's going to be the operation of some market markets in every system. This, this, you know, but the reality is is that when it comes to um, coverage, when it comes to where we have healthcare facilities, when it comes to how we how we distribute the services that exist. Um, I don't think that should be be determined by market forces. I think that should be determined by objective medical needs of patients and of communities. So Rob, you, I mean, I have probably about 200,000 texts from you telling me markets chatters markets. And you, you always try to tell me that everything that is driven in society and so forth is driven by markets. Are you saying that the healthcare system like Adam is not subject to market forces? Yeah, well, I, I think the market, you know, when I when I tease you about markets, it's not necessarily saying that I agree with the markets. It's merely saying that you know there are <laughs> there are forces beyond our control. And markets, what are markets? Markets are people. Uh, I know I I I I appreciate uh, Adam's candor over here, but I don't agree with it. I don't think we're in a free market by any means in healthcare. And he admitted it. Earlier on in the discussion, he he said that the um, government's already paying for sixty percent of the healthcare. So if you're paying for sixty percent of healthcare, you don't have markets, free market. Where I'm not talking about a perfect free market. There's no such thing as that. But uh, if you want to see market-driven healthcare, you need to go to India. India has market-driven healthcare, and what you hear see here are market forces within a segmented healthcare. So there's heterogeneity, and there's certainly market forces. But I don't think it's that clear cut. I think that if you look at somebody who is in a car accident, trauma, multi-system trauma, and they're on the um, M4, which is the uh, major freeway going into London, one of them, and they're on the I-76, I would say that regardless of if you if you get to the point where you have somebody who is extremely poor, uh, and this is going to really piss off a lot of people when I say this, and they're also going to say, "Well, show me the evidence." Uh, I would say that if you did an apples for apples comparison, that person would fare better in the United States. Why? Because of the size of the healthcare, because of the infrastructure over here. The fact that you can have the interventional radiology, and I've seen this. Okay? You know, I, I read trauma CTs, and I've seen progression of things. I've seen somebody having a hematoma in uh, from a uh, ruptured descending thoracic aorta, and the interventional radiologist 
putting a stent within 25 minutes. And you can do that because you scan left, right, and center. So I think that the redundancy of the American healthcare system is such that it benefits both the rich and the poor. And I'm not suggesting that it benefits the poor as much as the rich. I uh, said earlier on that we have, we you know, we have this Marie Antoinette sort of scenario, which, as Adam, being a uh, uh, a devout reader of French history, will know that uh, the uh, the the reference I'm making give them cake, give them CT angiograms. I'm not suggesting that the poor benefit as much as the rich. What I'm saying is that. You know, there's so much medicine over here that that so much medicine kind of permeates to people across the um, spectrum. And I, and I, I, uh, I, I'm in a center where I read studies from a huge um, spectrum of uh, wealth, from the people in North and West Philadelphia to people who live in the main line. And you know the difference because you look at the people in the who live in the main line and they all have a bone scan. So I see the whole spectrum, but I also see that some good that it takes. So I'm not quite sure that it's it's a magic bullet for inequity, and I'm not quite sure that it's going to actually. But, 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 but let me. Oh. But yeah, go ahead, Adam. Yeah, well, just because I think a few points have been raised here. So I mean, sir, first of all, was mentioning that healthcare, the overall benefits of it sort of pale in comparison to other sort of services or other kinds of socioeconomic goods. Um, and look, the fact is, is it's irrelevant because we need a healthcare system. And the question is, how are we gonna design it? Now, it may very well be true that only 10% of health is, you know, comes from healthcare. Um, that's a, a somewhat random statistic that's in the back of my head. Um, but it has made a difference. It does make a difference. Um, if you look at over the last 50 years, there have been significant gains in life expectancy that have been the result of the result of healthcare. Uh, it's not just about clean water anymore. That was done. Um, and other sort of public health interventions were done. And they obviously are crucial. But improving health at this point in history does often, um, not you know, require um, healthcare, um, and it's not the only thing. And there are other things that matter more, and other forms of oppression that may outweigh um, even having the best healthcare um, if if you are uh, racially or economically oppressed in other ways. It may very well um, 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 not be enough, uh, and it won't be enough. But that's that's a separate question. Okay. I also don't. I, I don't think that these sorts of things are mutually exclusive at all. I mean, if you look at history, if you look at the wake of uh, World War II in, because we've been talking a lot about the United Kingdom, we'll, we'll go back there for a minute. I mean, you know, the Labour Party delivered several things at once, and the NHS was one of them, but it wasn't the only one. Um, and if you look at Great Society in the 1960s, you know, it was civil rights, but it was also Medicare, it was also Medicaid. And I'm not holding up either of these moments as like perfect moments of, of, of um, where everything, you know, was utopian by any, any stretch, but there was progress made and it was made on multiple fronts. So I've always been skeptical of the argument that there's an intrinsic, um, you know, give and take that if we, if we push for greater equity in healthcare, if we push for um, universal healthcare, if we push for single payer, that somehow we're neglecting other things that might matter more or might matter in their own ways. I think we can sort of walk and chew gum at the same time. I want to, I want to shift in a little bit, uh, a couple of things in terms of uh, cost of drugs and so on. But before I do that, I want to back up a little bit and try to simplify things because um, as a listener, let me add, well, quick question. Adam, 
Medicare in its current form, has it been successful since it was created and passed into law? Has it, would you consider Medicare as a successful system for people over the age of 65? I think Medicare is a, a good program that has done a lot of good, that has a lot of flaws. Uh, the flaws of Medicare include, um, first of all, there are there is co-pays and deductibles that can be onerous for Medicare recipients. Two, it doesn't cover important things like dental care, um, uh, eyeglasses, other long-term care. And three, unfortunately, the way the Medicare system is structured has actually given rise to a number of very inefficient programs and, and, um, and financing mechanisms. So for instance, um, accountable care organizations, a lot of pay for performance programs that really lack evidence that they're helping uh, patients and um, have evidence that they may be putting a big burden of, of administrative paperwork and, and, and whatnot on clinicians. You know, some of that has come from the Medicare program. Um, and also the way the Medicare, this may be too arcane, but the way the Medicare system was set up back in the 60s, uh, the way it reimbursed hospitals actually promoted um, a certain kind of profit-oriented growth um, that wound up ultimately driving up costs. And so we, we don't need to get into that because it's a little, it's it sort of hist ancient history to some extent. But basically what I'm saying is, is that Medicare, before Medicare, most seniors, you know, um, had no health coverage at all. Uh, Medicare unquestionably improved uh, financial stability and health for them. Um, but there are shortcomings of the program that one would want to remedy before expanding yeah. it. And, and, you know, you want to make perfect the enemy of good. So, Rob, uh, your Medicare in its current form, I mean, good enough? I mean, it's not terrible, right? Depends what you want, what you define as good. If, uh, if it's um, to curb costs, then Medicare hasn't done that at all. And it hasn't done that because it's a um, blank check. It's that metaphorical blank check that your rich uncle throws to you and you can write whatever you want, and people have written whatever they want. Medicare is a reason why radiology is so big. If radiologists ever say that, oh, I believe in the free market, they're lying. If you had a free market in the United States, you would not have healthcare this big. Medicare is also the anchor with which private insurance works. So private insurance puts their fees according to Medicare fees. So people that love Medicare are radiologists, hospitals, Pharma, Pharma loves Medicare. Why? Pharma, why? Why? Because Medicare doesn't have the guts to say no to Pharma. It's not Medicare, it's the Congress, no? Well, you have a you have a political system that is so intertwined with the medical system, that is so intertwined with the paying system. You know, when people like me have pushed back and saying, you know, take politics out of medical medicine, people said, oh, well, Rupert, uh, Rudolf Verkoff or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, this is the thing. You have everything intertwined. You have Congress intertwined with flipping drugs. Adam, what do you think? And you have, you have radiologists <clears throat> lobbying to Congress for mammograms and colonoscopy coverage. This is what happens when you mix politics and medicine. Adam? So, well, I... I mean, first, medicine will always be mixed with politics. There's no society where that's not the case and never will be. Um, ultimately, we have a healthcare system. It's going to be influenced by the political process. And the only question is, is it being influenced in a good way or a bad way uh, or a mix? And, and how can we push it in a good way? Um, but I mean, I think what Zorba is saying is somewhat closely related to what I said when I acknowledged um, some flaws in Medicare. Um, when Medicare was passed in the 1960s, 
it was passed in a way that was friendly to hospitals uh, and to physicians. And that helped it get passed, frankly. Um, and yes, that has meant that it did succeed in covering seniors, but it did so at a higher cost. Um, and it did so uh, with sort of payment mechanisms for hospitals that encouraged them um, to expand and to invest and to um, um, you know become more expensive effectively. Uh, so basically, the, just because I keep referring to it, the initial formula by which hospitals were paid, basically Medicare covered their costs of expansion, including interest on debt they took out to expand. And that, that helped give rise to, to, to some of the, the increase in costs. But the details don't matter. I mean, we're in agreement here that, um, I mean, to go to the drug pharmaceutical issue, as, as Sarah mentioned, um, in 2003, when they added the drug benefit to Medicare, they explicitly said that Medicare couldn't take the steps that other countries do to keep down drug prices. So it is true that we Medicare pays very high for, um, pays very high prices for drugs, um, which is not the case in other countries. It pays probably about double um, other high-income nations. Overall, there's obviously some, some differences. But I mean, look, we can talk about this to the cows come home. Um, or we can talk about how we want to improve it. And that's what I'm interested in. So, I mean, you know, I mean, and again, I think one of the things that we're facing is no matter what, what healthcare system, let's face it, all of these drugs that get approved by the FDA are expensive and they're expensive because they are priced to whatever the market is willing to bear, right? I mean, whatever the market is willing to pay, the drug is priced. And, uh, you know, which healthcare system is going to afford these new drugs? Or do you think the FDA should, should not approve these drugs, Adam? I mean, I mean, we have these drugs pretty expensive. I mean, uh, not only in cancer, in, in the Alzheimer drug recently got approved, it's over $50,000 a month. So what, what, what I mean, do, do we design a healthcare system that's going to afford these drugs because we have failed to regulate drug prices? Yeah, so let me let me interject over here. I know you asked this question, Adam, because I think it kind of gets to the crux of the issue. And it sort of brings a lot of the other warts all together. Adam says that you can't remove politics from healthcare. And he may very well be right, but I guess the degree of involvement is just substantial. If you have radiologists lobbying Congress to approve you know, colonoscopy, CT colonoscopy. <laughs> that's that's like you know, that's like uh, lobbying a journal to take a to, to take a, to take an article. It's really gone a bit too far. And the the problem here is that because Medicare is a is a um, blank check, an ATM, right, and that is because. Politicians are too scared to regulate prices because, and that is because the electorate will punish the politicians if they regulate the prices, particularly the Republican ones, you know, hands off my Medicare. It's not the Democrats, but the Republican ones. And that is because healthcare is marginal cost, uh, is diffused to the whole population. It's all linked. It is all linked, and I'm not sure that single payer is going to solve any of these issues. Now, you could say that maybe it doesn't need to. You could say that, you know, and there is a, a one particular point of view from an economist who wrote a view on, uh, who wrote a book, uh, Baumol, yes, William Baumol. He wrote a book and he said, look, just make the other sectors productive, 
and healthcare could be 40% of the GDP or even 60% of the GDP. I have no problems with that. That's good for me. I'm a radiologist. I depend on third party systems. If it was a free market, nobody would get a cardiac CT. It's because it's a third party payer that we can buy a fancy scan and charge a bit more. But they're all linked. And this Alzheimer drug, right? I think we, you know, we can all agree that it's not, you know, it doesn't sound terribly promising, but the fact that FDA has approved it doesn't mean the doctors need to prescribe it. And here's another thing I kind of, you know, I want to push back on Adam one is this equity thing. There's nothing wrong in denying poor people the Alzheimer's drug. Nothing wrong at all, morally or ethically. There's nothing wrong in surcharging all the rich worried well with this particular drug and letting pharma get lots of money from it with the hope that they actually make something useful that can be diffused to the rest of the population. But if you have very strict definitions of equity, then you know it's a case of everybody must suffer in the same way. I see no reason why poor people need to be burdened with screening mammograms. I should be right. taken let's, away from that. Let's, let's hear Adam. Okay, well, se several things here. First of all, I mean, look, you can come up with the interesting philosophical question where if there's a totally useless drug that's harmful, you know, is denying it uh, to a low-income person actually a bad thing, right? But come on, let's put it, 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 it's a sort of fantastical hypothetical that no one's talking about. Um, as long as we think health, there's a service or good um, or a drug that has benefit, um, that has some incremental benefit, then it should be available to people sort of separate from their means, separate from their income. Um, and that's, that's how the system should be structured. We can talk with the Alzheimer's drug because it raises specific questions about the sort of regulatory prowess of the FDA currently. Um, but I want to push back on a couple other things that have gotten raised. First of all, despite what I acknowledge were the shortcomings of Medicare, currently, Medicare is less expensive than private insurance. And in other words, the, the, the way the market has gone, the way things have turned, uh, private insurers are now paying you know, high, much higher than Medicare. Medicare has managed to contain prices. If we moved you know, people on Medicare to private insurance, overall costs would rise. So that much is clear. Medicare does remain more efficient. And even putting aside the prices it pays to the radiologist for the screening colonoscopy, whatever example we're using, um, there is, and you mentioned this, Sarah, the administrative waste question. And this used to be contentious where we use one figure and sort of opponents use other figures. But now the Congressional Budget Office has sort of ruled that um, our figures were correct. Um, not mine particularly, but sort of people who advocate for, for this. Um, less than 2% administrative under overhead under traditional Medicare meaning 98% of every dollar that gets paid in the Medicare system goes out to healthcare, um, and, the, and, and, and it's more like 14% for private insurers, or somewhere north of 10%. Uh, uh, every dollar that a private insurer collects, it consumes in its marketing, its overhead, its administration, its profits, its CEO salaries, and um, its product design, et cetera, et cetera. So, so I, 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 I know we're shifting gears to the question of efficacy um, um, and, and how that affects how um, how, how things should be made available, but I want to sort of re-emphasize that Medicare does remain a more efficient program, fee-for-service Medicare, than does uh, private insurance. Um, now, look, this is where I, I have a very different take on this issue. The FDA should approve drugs 
using a high bar of evidence. And if it does not, drugs don't meet that, then it shouldn't approve it. When it does approve a drug that has bad evidence, we can talk a lot about what the next best thing is. Should, should if, if this drug has no good evidence, should Medicare deny it? We can talk about that, but I don't like it. I don't like it because you're gonna come with a system that appears to be rationing on the basis of, of, of people's economic needs. I want it to be done at the level of the FDA to say this drug is effective, everyone should have access to it, or this drug is not effective. Do one of the trial and come back to us and, no, and, and, and we don't make it available until then. I think that's how the system should work. The FDA will always contend, in fact, and I've seen some editorials from FDA officials, Adam, actually Sorab's point, and they will say, you know, we, don't, we really want to provide better access to patients and to physicians for these drugs. Some of these drugs have marginal benefit, but sometimes that benefit on an individual level could be pretty high. In other words, on a population, let's say take a population of lung cancer patients. When you look at the entire population of the lung cancer, maybe the incremental benefit is small, but when you're dealing with one patient in the room who has lung cancer, as the clinician, because you know that particular patient, there are specific parameters, clinical or molecular or whatever they are in that particular individual, that benefit could be substantially higher. So they actually always say, you know what, we will lower the bar, the barriers of entry to bring these drugs in. And then you as the clinician, you know that patient way more than anyone, you determine if you want to prescribe it or not. I don't think that that winds up working out very well. I don't. I think the FDA has approved drugs that have had minimal evidence of benefit in terms of hard outcomes and they get prescribed. Well, why do they get prescribed? And I've heard it said, well, doctors don't need to prescribe it. So, you know, what's that about? They're going to be prescribed. There's going to be there's going to be pressure. There's going to be physicians who are less educated about the issue. There's it's going to just become the thing that everyone's doing. Um, there may be financial incentives. There may be you know good and bad reasons why a good or bad doctor is going to prescribe a medication that doesn't work. And we can talk about that, and it may differ at any given time or any given day of week or any given doctor. But the point is, is that you know we shouldn't approve the drugs to begin with if we don't think they're going to help patients. I mean, that's the whole point of the FDA. And the problem is, is that there's been a weakening in the standards that are used by the FDA for drug approval. Um, you know, obviously there are gonna be some exceptions. Obviously there's gonna be some finer points, but overall we should have drugs approved on the basis of hard clinical outcomes, not on the basis of surrogate outcomes. Overall, we should, you know, save those expedited pathways for really, really critical game changers. Those expedited pathways, the accelerated pathways, those are becoming the norm by which drugs are approved now. I think more than half of drugs are approved under one of the special pathways for approval. So what's that about, right? Um, so, I mean, I think, I think that we need an FDA that is more rigorous, that uses higher standards for approval. Um, and that way we ensure the drugs that we have that are out are actually effective. Now, the question is, can we afford those? That's a separate question. And I think that we need to figure out how to make them affordable, which I think there are ways to do it. But I don't think that should be the FDA's job. I don't think the FDA should say, well, this is this drug works, but it's just too expensive, so we're gonna deny it. I, I don't think the FDA should incorporate cost considerations into its determinations of efficacy. I think the FDA should approve the drug if it, if it works. And then if that's the case, then the payer, the government under the single payer system um, takes steps to ensure that it's it's affordable to society. So, Rob? Yeah, so um, 
I was wondering what, what the actual essence of my disagreement with Adam has been. Well, I think I think what Adam is saying, I mean, the buck, what you what you are saying is, let the FDA approve the drug, yeah. and then the clinician decides. And Adam really contends that he says, you know what? No, I, I, actually, actually, my disagreement is more fundamental than that. The actual disagreement I have. Well, let me start off with with a fact that I think all three of us will agree on, which is that evidence and treatment effect is a spectrum. It's not all or none. There is penicillin, well, I don't know, what do they use these days? For meningitis, right. There's what Adam does, which is, you know, he has sick people in the ICU and he puts ECMO, puts them on ECMO. And there's what some of my colleagues do which is PET scans left, right, and center, looking for rare, rare, rare stuff. I don't think the three of them are the same. And I think we need to recognize that. And I think you know we have to think about treatment effect as being a spectrum. It's not all or none. And I have no problems with heterogeneity and inequity so long as the poorest don't get denied ECMO because they're poor, don't get denied penicillin. I have no problems with them being denied mammograms. Now, Adam will think, oh, I've just pushed, pulled something from the hat just to make a point. But I think this is emblematic of the healthcare that we have. We have so much that is so marginal. And, and this is the danger of using an all or none approach because it puts everything in the same bucket and everything is not in the same bucket. And I realize that that requires some sort of quantitative figuring it out. But my point being that the whole idea of single pair as being some sort of, oh, everybody gets something. I think the equality element of it is what I oppose. I have no issues ethically I will sleep very well at night knowing that somebody can't get a screening um, colonoscopy. But why? I mean, what, Adam, do you agree with that? I mean, would you sleep well at night if you are in a system where the poor cannot get screening colonoscopy and the rich can? Uh, yes, I would not. I would not be okay with that situation. I, I mean, either a screening colonoscopy. I mean, look, it's been a while since I've read up the latest, like, um, on the the mortality benefits. How about screening, screening cat scans for lung cancer? Maybe you've done <laughs> either, either we should It's controversial. It's, co it's, it's very controversial. It's kind of marginal. It's uh, uh, it's like, you know, you didn't get an RCT, you didn't- Yeah, but- but, but so right, for, yeah. I don't even know what- Are we talking about like CT colonographies or what? what are, I, I don't know what we're talking about, but- Well, I guess, I guess the question, the broader question, if there's- The broader a, question if, is if, marginal, if marginal. But yeah. if there's a screening test that's available, look, I mean, we can all agree there is no marvelous test out there that's 100% perfect and 0% at fault. We can obviously talk about the faults of mammograms, colonoscopies, CTs everywhere. I mean, we know that. But the bottom line is screening colonoscopy is recommended by a variety of societies, medical societies. So Rob's saying he would sleep very well at night, even if he wasn't drinking alcohol. If a poor person cannot get screening colonoscopy and a rich person can, Adam, but I wouldn't sleep you? well if the poor person couldn't get penicillin for meningitis. Okay, and I—that's what I, would make me lose my sleep. 
I would, I, I, I disagree. I think that if there's a procedure or a drug that we think is beneficial, all in all, I realize there are marginal cases. It should be available to everyone on the basis of need, not on the basis of means. I do that. I, I do think that. And I mean, we can talk about the, you know, you can come up with these philosophical cases for useless things. I mean, look, obviously, if someone out there is doing full body MRI scans of healthy people to for early detection, um, is that going to be covered under single payer if there's no medical evidence for it? It's not going to be. And so will that mean that some people are getting things that have no benefit because they're wealthy? Sure. But putting aside that, if there is a procedure or a drug that is recommended by societies, if it's generally thought to be useful, if it's generally thought to save lives, um, then, then it should be made available to everyone. And if your problem is, I don't think that there's enough evidence for this, then that should be the focus. Then we should address that paucity of, 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 of evidence. We shouldn't use rationing as a substitute for evidence. So, I mean, I, uh, I, I, I'm the moderator. I'm not going to say who I agree with, but what Adam is saying, you can't really let the wealth dictate what you would do, although, unfortunately, this is a very altruistic uh, view, Adam, because, you know, like uh, Steve, you know, well, Steve Jobs of the world got a liver transplant. No, 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 honestly, you should never get a liver transplant for it. I, honestly, I, I don't think, I mean, I think it's the way you frame it. It's not that people are using the wealth. It's rather saying that this is something that doesn't matter if it gets into the wealthy. I mean, particularly, you know, what I'm basically saying is that treatment, and Adam will not disagree with this because he's, you know, he's, he, he's, he's a critical care physician. He knows uh, that treatment effects aren't the same. Uh, he knows that um, treating ARDS isn't the same as picking somebody up from the street and saying, oh, let's just, uh, let's just screen you because you might have something that will kill you in 30 years. And that's not to say that that doesn't have a treatment effect. So I'm not, I'm not putting out this whole body MRI. I'm saying that there are bona fide things that have a treatment effect that are so small, so marginal, that I have no issues for it to be just given to the rich. But who decides, saying, how, who decides how small or how big? Like who makes that determination? Who beats it? We physicians. Yeah. And this is why I think we need to think like clinicians. And I would say that that is a fundamental problem with using an all or none approach to evidence. And that is why we need to put our medicine thinking caps and realize that there's a very big difference. There's a big difference between a child coming in with appendicitis and and uh, and this Alzheimer's drug that's just come out. Big difference. The problem with the Alzheimer's drug, it's not that the Alzheimer's drug has, you know, prevents Alzheimer's or like turns Alzheimer's around, but only in 1% of the time. And you can say, well, well, it's like, you know, it's a lottery ticket at 1% of the time, it cures your Alzheimer's, 99% of the time it doesn't. Um, that's not what it is. We don't know that it does anything, right? So we don't know that it actually has any clinical benefit. So this isn't about a question of marginal benefits. But look, I think we can get carried away with this question. Yes, treatment effects are a spectrum. Yes, every patient is different. Yes, what works for one may not work for another. Those are decisions that clinicians must make. But at the end of the day, the FDA has to make a decision to approve a drug or not. And that, that, that decision is going to be based on, is there evidence that 
from randomized trials that this drug extends life or improves life for those who have it. So let me give you one example. Let me give you one example, kind of on a global scale. We're going to say one last thing. Once it does that, it should not, the physician should be treating everyone the same. I don't think that we should be practicing wealth sort of based medicine where we, where we say or where we recommend one thing to one person, one thing to another. And that is where we're going, right? Because if a patient has a $5,000 deductible, you can say to them, look, I, I'm going to recommend the same drug to you that I would to someone with a zero deductible. And you can do that. But at the end of the day, they may get stuck with $4,000 and they may have, they may say, well, you know, is, is this the right thing to do? And I don't know what the right answer is in that situation. And it's shitty. And that's why we need to have a situation where physicians don't need to, to consider economic means of their patients when making treatment decisions. I mean, that's the system. Well, you know, I don't want to ever be in that situation. Well, and I, don't, yeah. I, I want to make a couple of points over here. First is that I think that this idea of, this idea, you know, one of the things that I've realized in diagnostics is that you have a stepwise sort of approach. You have, um, uh, particularly when it comes to diagnostics in poorer and rural countries, I'm oh, sorry, rural areas in poorer countries. So they can't all get a 128 detector CT scan, right? But they can get the cheapest chest radiograph. And they wouldn't have got the cheapest chest radiograph. And I realize this hypothetical and conjectural. If the vendors didn't first sell the 128 detector CT scans to lots of you know, uh, affluent places. So there's, there's a diffusion. I know people don't like trickle-down economics because it has a lot of really bad connotations. But I think that there's some dynamic working over here. With regard to your point about marginal benefits, I think what you're saying is that the Alzheimer's drug has no benefit whatsoever. Okay, fine. I guess I guess that might not be the best example. I'll give you another example. So there's this statin drug, as you've probably heard of. Uh, it, it sounds like that character from Star Wars, PKCSK whatever nine some inhibitor, right? I don't know what the name. I can't remember the name is, but it's it, but it does work. It, it it does provide incremental benefit over pravastatin. Now I'm taking pravastatin by the way. No, actually, I'm taking a tolvastatin. It's dirt cheap. I'm taking it. I'm not taking that. Uh, that PCKS whatever inhibitor. That definitely has an incremental benefit. It's like you know signal, but it has a cost. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong, ethically, morally, whatever, or even healthcare massive benefit-wise, to restrict that particular drug, knowing very well that that's an incremental benefit to the um, uh, to Upper East Side New York. Let them let them get it. Let them get it and let them actually you're, you're make the farm. You're promoting inequality, no? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I'm promoting inequality in the right areas. No, I'm, like, saying, I'm saying Let me hear from Adam. No, wait, 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 wait. I'm, I'm saying that there's certain things you shouldn't have inequality over. Like you should not have, you should not have people exposed to Giardia Lamlia. That's not, you know, that's not. But you you're setting have, the bar for inequality so low. I mean, yeah, you're saying oh, you yeah, you yeah. have you're saying you shouldn't have, you know, uh uh 
you know, people dying of appendicitis because, the, uh, fine, but that's like, that's of course. We, I, I think that we shouldn't, we, we want to work towards a healthcare system that treats everyone the same. I mean, I, that's what I wanna see. And I think that as physicians, we should practice that way. And I think that um, the current system ties our hands behind our back, but we sometimes can't because patients don't have uh, full coverage of, of what they need. And so doctors do practice class-based medicine, even if it's not what they want to do. I, I, I fundamentally disagree. I think if a drug is beneficial, we should make it available to everyone and we should figure out a way to pay for it at a society level. Now, it is true that you can't simply have a open checkbook system where the FDA approves drugs and Medicare says, we'll just pay whatever the price is, right? That's, that's, that's bound to ultimately fail. So that's where we have to talk about the kinds of policies that can reduce drug prices, ranging from what they do in Europe negotiations, formularies, um, you know, um, and we can talk about other modes of, of developing drugs um, off patent, um, you know, using um, the NIH to directly fund clinical trials, using the NIH to directly keep drugs in the, in, the, in the public domain. Maybe this is getting as far afield, but my point is, is there should be two different things. The FDA and physicians for that matter should just, the FDA should, should decide on what's approved on the basis of the medical evidence Physicians should prescribe on the basis of what they think the patient will benefit. And then we as a society should decide, should make the policy changes we need to control those drug prices uh, to a level that we can afford it as a nation. And the person's individual economic means should not come into it. That's how the system should work. Well, I mean, look, I think, uh, uh, first of all, believe it or not, we've been going almost for 75 minutes and I could go for another 75. The problem is what I've learned is listeners will not go for so long listening. So it is in the best interest to figure out some concluding remarks because I want them to hear everything possible. First of all, I, I would love to have you both back because you both are a wealth of knowledge when it comes to all of this. I want to conclude by having maybe three or four points that you both can agree on when it comes to the payer system in the United States of America, and maybe the couple of points that you disagree on that we probably can save for some later show. But what can we agree on? What can you both agree on? Point number one. Uh, Saurabh, do you want to... Alzheimer's drug sucks. Alzheimer's drug sucks. I think Adam will agree with that. Adam, another point you both agree on from a payer perspective. Well, I think that we agreed that um, implementation of a single payer system itself doesn't in and of itself suddenly level the disparities in, in the availability of healthcare geographically. Okay. Any other points that you both can agree on? So it does not help disparities. Anything else, uh, Sora? It helps, just doesn't. Not you know, I, I, I agree with Adam that there's a lot of administrative waste associated with a third party payer, like an insurance company where, you know, you I see this all the time. We have to bill and you have to include like, you know, the right views and you have to change your dictation to get the billing. So I think there's a lot of resource consumption with the current system, which would be um, well, you you actually require a global payment for that, but yeah, I think. So, so my last system. question, and then I'm going to let you go. Um, each one will answer uh, separately. You only have less than six seconds to answer, by the way. Sarab, so, you are in charge of the entire healthcare system in America. 
you literally can do whatever you want, whatever you want. What are the two things that you will implement day one of that responsibility? Two things. I'd implement a very strong public option, <coughs> one that got killed by Obamacare. And I'd also encourage every single doctor to use their clinical acumen okay. and say, listen, your bloody doctors think like one. Adam, you're in charge. You can do whatever you want. No question asks. asked the top two things you will do today. I mean, it may not come as a surprise, <laughs> but um, I would uh, pass and implement a Medicare for all system, covered everyone without cost sharing, and that moved sort of healthcare resources to where they're most needed, um, not just where they're profitable. And then I think the second thing I would do is I would really transform the way that we both approve and develop drugs. I think we could move drug development more into the public sphere, keep drugs, sort of the, 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 the public owning the patents more frequently, um, and think about new ways to develop drugs that doesn't depend upon um, pharmaceutical incentives. Those would be the two things I'd do. Well, gentlemen, the best thing about the fact that none of this is going to happen in the next year is that I will continue to have more uh, talk shows and podcasts on the healthcare system, because if we resolve it today, I will have to scratch a lot of the podcast episodes I planned for the next academic year. So hopefully this will be resolved in the near future. But uh, I want to thank you for taking time for going the long haul. And I would I want to promise from both of you that you will come back in the six months' time. Now you are on the clock. Sounds like good. Thank you. Okay, well, here it was. We did go for longer than I expected, but it was very difficult to stop. It was a very important topic, and I certainly enjoyed it. And I hope you enjoyed it as well. I hope you learned from these two scholars about uh, their views on the healthcare system, good, bad, and ugly, and what can we do actually differently. So I really want to thank Adam Gaffney and Saurabh Jaha for coming on this podcast. Very much appreciated. And I'd like you to check out my YouTube channel, Chadi Naban and Healthcare Unfiltered, and to subscribe to it. And hopefully you can hit the like button. You can watch all of these podcasts on the YouTube channel. You can subscribe to the podcast, refer a colleague. Don't forget to rate the podcast uh, when you can. You can also visit my website, www.chadinabhan.com, and take a look at various features on the website and correspond with me there. Let me know how I'm doing by sending me a tweet or a direct message at chadinabhan or sending me an email via my website or to chadinabhan00 at outlook.com. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Mark Twain. It's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. Until next time, take care.